0: Our thoughts seem to be immaterial, so for example, it wouldn't make sense to ask how much does a thought weigh or what color is it? But wouldn't you say that we couldn't think at all if we didn't have brains? And if our thoughts are dependent on us having brains, doesn't this basically mean that our minds are identical to our brains? In this episode, I'm going to discuss two arguments for mind-body dualism that show the mind and the brain are not identical, and thus the mind and brain are distinct, so the soul must exist apart from the brain. If you have ever wondered if there is evidence for the soul, I hope you'll stick around and discover the evidence that has been in front of you this whole time. In this lecture, we are going to be talking about arguments for the soul. So, in the last lecture, we covered arguments against physicalism, and I mentioned uh, that we were just uh, showing why a, a few reasons why we think physicalism is false, but that didn't necessarily prove that uh, mind-body dualism is true. So, in this lecture, I'm going to be discussing a couple arguments specifically for the soul, a couple arguments specifically uh, establishing something like mind-body dualism. If you've been following this series, we've been covering, uh, I, I show a, uh, uh, or read a Bible passage at the very beginning of each, um, each lecture. And the last one that we covered comes from Genesis 1, verse 26. And This says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And I discussed this verse last time. If you want to hear me talk about it a little bit more, you can go back to the, to the last lecture on mind-body dualism. Um, but it's a great passage. It talks about how God made humankind in his image, and this entails... Uh, that we do have uh, uh, an intellect and a will which are necessary to, to act in the image and likeness of God. Um, uh, the questions for reflection for, for this lecture um, are, I've got, I've got a f- just a few this time. So the first question is, what are qualia? Uh, if you're not sure what that is, then you need to at least go back to the last one. I'll talk a little bit more about it this time, but that's something important to, to understand for these. The second question is, do you think it would make sense to say that a picture of a baseball player is about a baseball player? Why or why not? Do you think it would make sense to say that a picture of a baseball player is about a baseball player? Um, the last question is, which of the arguments against substance dualism do you think is the strongest and why? So, if you're watching this on YouTube or or some other video, um, it would be great for you to leave a comment if you have one about this, or you can send me an email if you're listening to this on podcast. Um, I I would love to interact. All right, so let's talk about arguments for the soul. Uh, Before we do, I did want to pause and to kind of uh, define substance dualism and property dualism all over again. Uh, because if you remember, like I said, what happened last time was we, we stopped and we said, okay, we've shown reasons why we think physicalism is false, but that we, we're still left with the possibility of property dualism. So we haven't necessarily proven something like substance dualism to be true just yet. Um, if you are starting here or uh, if you didn't hear the last lecture, substance dualism, uh, the uh, definition that we're running with in, in these lectures is from J.P. Moreland, uh, and he defines substance dualism as a, a human person has both, uh, it's, it's going to be the view that a human person has both a brain that is a physical thing with physical properties and a mind or soul that is a mental substance and has mental properties. So, uh, substance dualism is the view that a human person has both a, a, a physical body and an uh, immaterial soul, okay? You put those two together, you've got a human person. Property dualism is, a, is different. It says a human being is one material substance that has both physical and mental properties with the mental properties arising from the brain, okay? And um, and that's where we were left off last time. So we said that physicalism is false because we were showing that uh, showed a couple arguments uh, showing that not everything about reality is explainable in physical terms. So that basically gets rid of physicalism. Uh, but you could still be left with a property dualism that says that there are uh, there's nothing but physical things, but they can have uh, mental or immaterial properties. And I didn't explain this last time, but uh, just one way to think about it, one way that I mention this uh, when I'm talking about proper dualism is to, um, a good example is to think about heat. So if you hold your hand up to a fire or if you hold it up to a hot stove, you know, think about that. So what, what causes heat? Um, I'm not a scientist but um, what little I do know I, I've, I've, I think it comes from the particles right in the uh, uh, in the air or or in the heating uh, element whatever it is they, they start to speed up and it causes friction and energy and, and all that and that's what produces heat right um, now, but whenever you think about what, is, what it's like to experience heat, it's not as mechanical. Uh, it's not as, it's not similar to uh, the physical processes, right? So um, I might hold an instrument, I might hold a thermometer up to the heat. I, I could hold two or three thermometers up to the heat and they all should give me the same um, reading, right? It's going to be just whatever temperature it is. But if two or three people walk up to the, the heat and they put their hand out, they might experience two or three different uh, feelings, right? One person might, uh, you know, uh, you could think of several scenarios. Maybe that person had their hand in some cold water. They might think that the heat is really hot. Another person that m- m- might have been standing at room temperature m- will feel the heat and, and uh, it won't feel as hot to him or her, uh, and, and any number of things could cause the experience of the heat to be different. And also, of course, a sensation, you know, we've talked about qualia before, the what it is likeness to experience heat, I can't necessarily explain in physical terms. So uh, this is something that uh, you could, that a property dualist is going to want to say that that experience, the qualia of the heat Is going to be uh, this uh, immaterial property of of the fire, the element, and your experience of the heat will be a mental property. Okay, so that's kind of uh, what property dualists are saying. And your your mind. Why do we think you know when we think about mental contents and other things like that? Why do we think something's immaterial going on? Well, we're just uh, getting at the the mental properties that that arise from the brain. Okay. Um, and, and you know, like what we talked about last time when we were looking at arguments against physicalism, what we were trying to say is that the the brain and the mind don't seem to be identical. And at this point, a property dualist might say, well, um, you know, when we look at, at science, it seems like any type of mental state, there's some correlation in the brain that goes along with that. Well, that's not necessarily, uh, you know, a a knockdown argument for property dualism or physicalism, right? Because just because two things come packaged together, that doesn't mean that they're identical, right? You have to always remember that we're asking, uh, is the mind and is the brain identical? Um, Are physical and mental states identical, okay? And just because maybe a certain neuron fires every time you experience some mental uh, content or mental experience um, doesn't mean that the two are identical, right? Uh, uh, you know, and like I said, just because two things come packaged together doesn't mean they're identical. So, for example, you, you can't have something, and I've, I think I get this example from J.P. Moreland in his book, you can't have something that is triangular without it also being trilateral, for example. Uh, but this doesn't mean that triangularity and being trilateral identical properties, right? And in the same way, just because you can't have redness without a physical apple and light, this doesn't mean that redness is identical to a physical property, okay? So, but let's, um, I'm, I'm, you know, talking about this um, just really briefly, but now I want to get into some arguments. They're going to really pull out why we think that um, the mental states are not going to be identical to physical states, and they and we can't think of them as just properties. It seems like it, it, it has to be a part of a soul, okay? And I wanted to look at a couple of arguments. One is called the conceivability argument, and the second one is called the argument from unity and the first-person perspective. I mentioned this in the last lecture, but uh, j- just again, and, and if you're watching this, I've got a picture of the book. Um, I get th- I get these arguments, um, I mean, I've, I've uh, augmented them a little bit myself because I've presented these in my philosophy classes and other places, um, but in J.P. Moreland, so J.P. Moreland wrote a book called The Soul, How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters, and if you are interested in arguments for the soul, he actually has five of them in there, and I'm going to present two that are similar to what he presents in the book. So, uh, if you're interested in more arguments for the soul, you can check out his book. Uh, he's written a lot more scholarly books, uh, but he wrote this one for a general audience. So I found it really easy to understand. Um, you know, if you wanted to dig deeper, he he will have some books that are very scholarly, uh, very technical. But that but if you're interested in arguments for the soul, and maybe you don't have a degree in philosophy. I would definitely check that out. Um, I just think the topic of the soul is so important for Christianity uh, because, right? We're we're trying to uh, tell people that, uh, you know, there's an afterlife, right? And it and it matters what that afterlife is going to be like for you. Uh, and and an afterlife wouldn't be possible without us with without a soul, right? So a big part of the gospel message relies on someone thinking that uh, whether souls are real or not. So um, anyways, let's talk about the conceivability argument. So this is going to be the first one that we were going to use to try to uh, prove uh, substance dualism being true over property dualism. So um, the my definition of it here is conceivability argument. Um, this has also been known as the modal argument, um, if you've seen that label. But uh, this is the argument stating that because it is conceivable that the mind can exist without the body, they must not be identical. <laughs> okay. It, it, conceivability argument says that uh, because it is conceivable that the mind can exist without the body, they must be uh, they must not be identical. Now, um, I'm sure at this point, if you haven't heard of this argument before, you might be thinking, wow, that uh, that sounds ridiculous. You're saying that because I can conceive that the mind and the body are, uh, can exist apart, then they must not be identical. But guess what? I can conceive of a lot of crazy things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're that that's uh, the case in reality, right? Like I can conceive of a unicorn, but that doesn't mean that unicorns exist. So where is this argument going? Um, well, it's a lot, it's a little bit more technical than that. I've, I wasn't sure if I should show this argument, but I think it's, I think people can understand it. So I wanted to share it with you. I've been really excited about these arguments for the soul because um, a, a lot of my research for my PhD was done in the philosophy of mind. So this is one of my favorite, uh, 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 parts of philosophy to talk about, uh, especially because I, I think as much as we do, as much as people do apologetics, not not too many people talk about arguments for the soul. But anyways, uh, this, uh, it's, it sounds crazy at first, but this argument deals with uh, metaphysical possibility and physical possibility and make some distinctions that once you understand them, you'll realize how big of a deal it is that you can conceive of the mind apart from the body. That's actually a huge deal, okay? Now, um, just to kind of formalize all this, I usually don't even uh, use a formal argument when I present uh, this this argument in my philosophy class. I um, But here's one that I found from J.P. Moreland, and I think it actually makes it pretty easy to follow. So I was going to use his formulation of this conceivability argument. So premise one, there's uh, three, uh, two premises and a conclusion. Uh, Premise one says, I am possibly disembodied. I could possibly survive without my brain and body. Okay. Two, my brain and body are not possibly disembodied. They could not survive without being physical. Three, therefore, I am not identical to my brain and body. Okay, and and as always, what I want to do is show you uh, what exactly these premises mean and how we would defend them uh, so you can uh, show this conclusion that you are not identical to your brain and body. And I'll also talk about how this entails that um, property dualism is false. Okay, now, before we get into this argument, it is important to make a distinction between two types of possibility that I uh, mentioned just a second ago. So, the first type of possibility is physical possibility, which has to do with things that are or are not possible given the world we observe and the laws of nature, right? Um, and when you talk about physical possibility... You're talking about what we know about the world, giving the laws of nature that we know. So um, one example I like to use all the time is, uh, and I think I got this from Edward Faser in in his book on the philosophy of mind. But uh, one example I like to use is the question, is it possible for a human being to run a mile in a minute? Right. And if you're talking about physical possibility, the answer is going to be no. Uh, the fastest people are running a, a, a mile is a little under four minutes, uh, from what I understand. But right now, it's not physically possible for a human being to run a mile in a minute. Uh, that's pretty fast, and, and we don't have the capability to do that. Uh, but when you think about metaphysical possibility, okay? Metaphysical possibility has more to do with logical concepts we know from abstracting truths from reality, so when you get into metaphysical possibility, a lot of times you're asking more like, is it, is there any contradiction in believing that this is, this could happen, right? So, uh, you know, for example, it is, uh, when you talk about metaphysical possibility, I can, I can uh, tell you um, examples of things that are metaphysically impossible. So it's, it's metaphysically impossible for two plus two to equal five, for example, Uh, It's metaphysically impossible to have a square circle. It's metaphysically impossible for there to be a married bachelor, right? Because if you understand these concepts, you'll understand that there's a contradiction entailed with those things that I was saying. So it's metaphysically impossible for those things to happen. Now, when you return to the question of can a human being run a mile in a minute, we would say that that is physically impossible But whenever you ask, is it metaphysically possible for a human being to run a mile in a minute, Uh, you kind of, the one question you ask is, is there anything logically contradictory about saying that a human being could run a mile in a minute? And the answer is no, really, right? And when you start to ask, is it metaphysically possible? You just have to picture, um, could there be some world in which it is the case that human beings can run a mile in a minute? And when you do that, you just kind of conceive of what that would, what would be the case for that to happen. So I can think of several scenarios where human beings could run a mile in a minute. So maybe, uh, there's a world with less gravity. So human beings, uh, uh, can run faster, uh, without as much effort. Maybe, uh, you could put bionic legs on somebody or, or, or give a human being some, uh, some kind of drug that makes them, uh, run super fast and and be super strong, right? So uh, I can think of all these different scenarios where it would be possible. So when you ask, is it possible for a human being to run a mile in a minute, we would say it's physically impossible, but metaphysically possible, right? Because given the reality, we know it's physically impossible, but uh, conceiving of a world where it could be possible, it means it's metaphysically possible. Okay. We're going to be using this question, uh, to talk about, uh, excuse me, I'm going to be using this distinction to talk about another question. And then I'm going to use this question to then bring this back to uh, thinking about whether the mind and the body, uh, yes, the mind and and the body or the mind and the brain are identical. Okay. So before I move on to the mind and the body, here's another question for you. We already said that it's metaphysically impossible for 2 plus 2 to equal 5, all right? 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's not metaphysically possible because what is 2 plus 2? It's 4. And 4 is not identical to 5. So 4 does not equal 5. Now, uh, but let's ask another question. Is it metaphysically possible for H2O to not be water? Okay, okay. We're, we're, we're thinking about identity, we're thinking about H2O, which is hydrogen and oxygen, right, uh, in a certain configuration, and we're thinking about water, okay? And we're asking the question, are H2O and water identical, okay? And, and similar to what we did a second ago where we said, could it be possible for a human to run a mile in a minute? Uh, we're also going to use that same method and ask the question, is H2O identical with water? Okay. So when we're thinking about that, we have to think, okay, so if H2O um, and water are not identical, then maybe we would have to uh, picture, for that to be the case, we'd need to picture a world in which you had H2O, but it wasn't water. Okay. So, so to say it another way, and maybe an easier way is Can you imagine a world in which you have H2O, but it's not water? That's really the question we need to ask. And, um, you know, you can pause the video or or the the podcast and and think about it for a while. Um, But just so you know, from what I understand, uh, philosophers don't think that you can picture a world in which you have H2O and you don't have water. I mean, and don't get caught up on the semantics of it all. I'm not asking, you know, I'm, I'm not worried. Of course, I can picture a world where people call water schwatter or any other thing. Uh, I'm not worried about what it's called. I'm just saying that if you had H2O in this configuration, it, would it uh, could you conceive a world in which it wouldn't be water? And generally, we can't conceive of a world like that, right? If you have something that's H2O, it just is water. Uh, that's because they are metaphysically identical, okay. Uh, and 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 I mentioned this a little bit before when I was talking about Leibniz's uh, law of the indiscernibility of identicals, right? Um, because H two O and water are metaphysically identical, everything I could say about H two O is also going to be true of water uh, because they're the same thing. Now let's bring this question of identity back to the mind and the brain. Okay, so if you remember premise one of our, uh, of our conceivability argument says, I am possibly disembodied. I could possibly survive without my brain and body. Okay, and you see there, we're using the word possibility. Now, in this case, though, we don't need to get caught up on physical possibility because we're asking a question of identity which is a metaphysical question. So we're thinking about metaphysical identity. So we're not thinking about physical possibility. We're worried about metaphysical possibility. Okay. And our question is, are the mind and the brain identical? So basically we need to conceive of worlds where maybe you could have one without the other. Just like when we were asking, is H2O uh, identical to water? And we said, well, let's let's see if we can conceive of a world in which you have H2O without water. But we said, no, you can't conceive. So they are metaphysically identical. Let's bring this back to the mind and the brain and say, can you conceive of a world in which you have a mind that exists apart from a brain? Okay. So is it conceivable for the mind to exist without the body In other words, is there anything contradictory about thinking the mind could exist without the brain? Um, At first, that might seem like a silly question, but there's ways to kind of draw out what I'm getting at. So basically, I mean, one of the easiest things that I can think of is just, um, you know, just think of a, a dream. One way is that have you ever had a dream in which you were disembodied? I've had some dreams like this, which were kind of crazy, but I was basically just kind of like a floating flying spirit. And that's an easy way for me to conceive of this. Some people have a harder time and I have examples that can kind of help you if you can't conceive of your, your mind without a body One of my favorite examples comes from a dualist uh, mind-body dualist philosopher named wd hart so hart imagine asks you to imagine uh, that you wake up one morning and you look in the bathroom mirror and you see staring back at you two empty side two empty eye sockets where your eyeballs used to be can you can you picture that so you, you, you look in the mirror and you, and you see yourself, but you see that you don't have eyeballs in your eye sockets. It sounds creepy, uh, but that would, that would be a start to uh, picturing that your mind is there, uh, but, but certain parts of your body are not. Now, another way to think about it is to think, okay, so maybe you saw that, or maybe you looked in the mirror one morning and you didn't see anything at all. You look in the mirror and you don't see anything at all and maybe it freaks you out so much that you look down to to, or you try to touch your body and you look down all at the same time to try to see what's happening and you just don't see anything and you don't feel anything when you look down either Um, you look down somehow but it actually wasn't your head looking down because you you realize that you're just you're just a floating mind somehow right uh, another another way I think of it is like if you've ever played John Madden Football on uh, Xbox or or any other uh, uh, PlayStation or anything like that, uh, you know if you hit if you uh, do a certain football play, this, I'm talking about a football video game. If you do a football play that you really like, you can you can pause the game and go to a replay mode. Well, in the replay mode, you're just basically Uh, in control of this floating camera that can go anywhere on the field. Well, if you just imagine that that camera is your mind, uh, you'd be, you'd be imagining a world in which you have a mind without a body. Okay. So there's several scenarios, but I personally don't think it's that hard to conceive of a mind apart from a body. uh, Right. Um, I mean, and again, we're not talking about physical possibility because it might be physically impossible to have a mind without a body. Right. Uh, You, you might not be able to experience the world because you wouldn't have eyes and ears and all that, but we're not worried about that. We're just worried about whether there's something logically contradictory about conceiving of a world, uh, in which there's a mind without a body. Okay. And since it, since we can, uh, and again, we, we asked ourselves that with H2O, and we couldn't even conceive of a world with, with uh, H2O without water. But in this case, we're saying that it actually it isn't that hard to imagine a, uh, a, a mind apart from a, a brain. And because we can even, because we can conceive of one without the other, that seems to mean that they're not metaphysically identical, like H2O and water are metaphysically identical. You can't conceive of a world without one, without the other. But since you can conceive of a world with a brain, uh, excuse me, a mind apart from a brain, then um, that means that they're not metaphysically identical, right? But moving on to premise two, premise two says my brain and body are not possibly disembodied they could not survive without being physical. And this is just kind of to establish the fact that your, your brain and body are not things that could be disembodied, right? We established in premise one that you are possibly disembodied. You could survive without the brain and the body. And that's where we pictured the mind existing apart from the brain, or apart from the body. But then when you just, you look at premise two, it's saying, but your brain and body are not possibly disembodied, right? And it's, it's pretty easy. I don't, not too many people are going to object to this. Uh, if, if, you, if you think about, can you have a, a body apart from a body, right? Or um, could, another way to ask it is, could the body exist without being physical, and you can't really conceive of a world in which you have a body that's not physical. I mean, you can think of something like Nearly Headless Nick or, or, um, or Casper the Friendly Ghost, but, but even Nearly Headless Nick, like he has a body, but it's not what we would call a body, is it? It's more like this ethereal um, figure. So uh, y- you can't have a brain and a body that's disembodied. <laughs> you know, a, a disembodied body is just a contradiction, right? So, um so that leads to this conclusion that therefore uh you are not identical to your brain and your body, right? We've already seen that the according to the law of the discernibility of identity, the mind and body are uh, are not identical, right? And and this is just another way of showing that there there's two there's two big things about this conceivability argument. The one is is really what I already showed is that the mind and the brain aren't metaphysically identical because you can conceive of the mind apart from the brain. But since uh, since you are what you know with your inner mental life. We've talked about how you are this uh, this substance somehow that persists through time, right? And, and you can perceive of yourself apart from your body. So you, uh, whatever that is, is possibly disembodied. But your body can't be disembodied. So that means that you are not identical with your physical body, and that it concludes that, um, uh, yeah, that that basically what we've been saying that there is a soul. Uh, that you are not just a physical body with mental properties, okay? And, and just to bring that back around to the law of discernibility of identity, after we've reached this conclusion, we can also just remind you that if physicalism is true, then everything about um, the physical body should also be true of the mind. But since we've just seen from premise one and two that there's truths about the mind that are different from the the truths about the brain and the body, then obviously they're not identical. So you can think about that metaphysical possibility that shows the conceivability that shows they're not identical, but also that's another way to draw out the differences uh, uh, using the law of discernibility of identity that the, the mind and body are not identical. Okay. But that, that argument, the conceivability argument's pretty metaphysical. Um, some people find it hard uh, uh, not only to understand, but to even think that the conclusion has a huge implications for everything. One of my favorite arguments, uh, because of its simplicity, is the argument from unity and the first person perspective, okay? This is an argument uh, which points out a really, uh, I think, easy to grasp concept, easy to explain, And it it all has to do with the first-person perspective, okay? Uh, So let's look at this, and it's another simple one. We've got uh, two premises and a conclusion. The first premise says, if I were a physical object, like a brain or a body, then a third-person physical description would capture all the facts that are true of me, okay? Premise two says, but a third-person physical description does not capture all the facts that are true of me. Three, therefore, I am not a physical object, Uh, Let's talk about how you would defend uh, premise one and two. So premise one says, if I were a physical object, then a third person physical description would capture all the facts that are true of me. Now, I think this one is actually pretty easy to defend, is not only easy to understand, but also easy to defend. And it's pretty, it's pretty easy to explain why, right? Uh, You know, Think of any object and and say that you're going to describe that physical object. Um, You're never going to use the first person to describe it, correct? Uh, If I want to describe an apple, for example, I'm not going to be using first person pronouns while I'm talking about it. That apple is red. That apple tastes sweet or tart. Um, It's got a certain texture and a certain color and all these things. I'm never going to be describing the apple and saying, I am red, I am sweet, right? Because that you would basically think I was insane. Now, because, uh, and, and especially because it's a physical object, every fact about it is going to be some third personal uh, description, right? Moving on to premise two, uh, if you remember, premise two says, but a third-person physical description does not capture all the facts that are true of me, right? And uh, I like to use pain as an example to show uh, how this is true. So we're just trying to say, we're just trying to say that third-person physical description would not capture all the facts that are true of you. Okay. Now this is going to be for two main reasons. Okay. And those main reasons are that there are first personal facts about you that would not make sense in the third person. And the second reason is that this is because you are a unity that can't be reduced to a physical collection of parts. Okay, so using pain as an example, right? Um, Say you you hurt your arm somehow. Uh, It gets burned or gets scraped or something like that. Now, if property dualism were true, Uh, And and we can explain all of this in the third person because property dualism entails that you're completely physical with immaterial uh, properties. You would need to explain this pain with something like this. This arm was damaged so the nerve cells in the arm have been activated and are sending signals through this nervous system to a brain which receives the signals and all of this results in the mental property of the sensation of pain. Now, if you've hurt your arm before, have you ever thought anything like that statement I just mentioned? Uh, the answer is going to be no, right? Of course you haven't. Uh, you think to yourself, ouch, I am feeling pain or ouch. I have pain in my arm now. uh, right there, when we, when we talk about this, for one, you are experiencing pain. You wouldn't say your arm is experiencing pain. You're saying I am in pain, right? Uh, but if physicalism is true, or if property dualism is true, this uh, I am in pain, uh, this is just a thought, this is just another thought that is just an a immaterial property of a brain state, like your neurons firing, right? But just like we mentioned with the apple, uh, describing a third person, uh, describing a physical object in, in uh, first personal terms, wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. So the fact that you're saying, I am in pain, this is something that wouldn't make sense uh, if property dualism were true, okay? And another reason how you can show that, that property dualism doesn't make sense in this case is that you, uh, to say that uh, you have an identity, say, I am in pain, The question is, who is the I in that statement? Who is feeling that pain? Now, uh, property dualism and physicalism entail that you are just a collection of physical parts, right? Um, So when you say, I am in pain, the problem on physical, on property dualism or physicalism is that uh, nobody is actually making that statement. Like I said, that statement would just be another thought uh, that's, that's a, uh, mental property of some physical thing in this collection of physical stuff. Right. I mean, uh, you know, you can kind of take it further. Uh, scientists have found that, uh, when you feel pain, for example, certain portions of your brain light up. So it's not even like your entire brain, you know, a lot of my students in, in philosophy class or, or a good portion of them anyways uh some of them a lot of times end up concluding that they essentially are their brains but when we experience pain right we said it's not it's not the hand that's saying ouch or it's not your arm that's saying ouch i'm in pain uh but when you look at it like only a certain portion of your brain is lighting up is that portion that's lighting up is that you um you know, and to kind of go back to what we were saying, if you're, if you're going to explain all this in third personal terms, a full explanation is going to entail something like, uh, you know, some signals went from an arm to a section of the brain. The neurons in the brain uh, have the mental property of a pain sensation. Um, but who is feeling the pain? Uh, you know, we said it wasn't your arm. It's, are we saying your brain is feeling the pain? Uh, the thing is, you have to presuppose some kind of unity, some kind of I in all this to, to explain, uh, to make sense out of the statement, ouch, I am in pain. Um, you know, if that doesn't make sense, let me explain it in another way. Let's say that you do conclude that you are your, just your brain and you say, I am just a brain. Or let's say this, I am just a collection of physical parts. Okay. Now the problem is that if physicalism or property dualism are true, then even that thought itself is just a a part of the collection, right? If property dualism is true, the very thought, I am just a collection of physical parts is a mental, it's mental content. So that's going to be a mental property of neurons firing in your brain. But who is making that statement? Even the very thought itself is just a collection, is just a part of the collection. There's no one making that statement if physicalism is true. The only way to make sense out of anybody making this statement is to, is to uh, presuppose that there's a unity there or to conclude that there's a unity there, something that could actually make that statement. Um... And that's why uh, when you're talking about premise two, uh, there are um, a third personal description does not capture all the facts that are true of you. It's because you are a unity and because you are uh, experience the world from the first person perspective. Does that make sense? So because you have this first personal perspective of the world and you are a unity, then the third person does not capture everything about you. Another interesting thing, another way that you can point out uh, or defend the truth of premise two is to talk about intentionality. Uh, w- when, when you describe everything in terms of, in only physical terms, what happens is that you completely ignore rationality and intentionality, okay? You know, if I'm going to say that uh, property dualism is true and everything about me is uh, is explained completely in physical terms, then this is going to cause some issues, right? Uh, Let's let's take, uh, let me um, talk about a scenario to bring this out. So let's say that Socrates is supposed to meet Plato at the marketplace at noon, but when Plato arrives, Socrates is not there. Socrates is actually attending a lecture and knows he is supposed to meet Plato, but Socrates wants to hear the speaker finish a point before he meets Plato. Socrates doesn't think Plato will mind as long as Socrates is there in the next five minutes. Now, let's say that Plato asks you, why is Socrates not here? And you tell Plato, oh, well, because sound and light waves are hitting Socrates' ears and eyes, and signals are being sent to his brain. And then you just look at him. (laughs) Plato's not going to be satisfied with that answer, because that answer might be the physical explanation uh for what's going on with Socrates uh but that doesn't answer his question does it cuz he said why is Socrates not here the second this uh, second explanation is because Socrates is listening to a lecture and wants to hear the speaker finish his point before meeting you in the marketplace that is going to satisfy plato now if you had just explained everything about someone in completely physical terms then you are completely ignoring uh, intentionality, and you're ignoring rationality. And um, I guess if you want to, you can say that all of that is a um, is an illusion. But we're going to show you in the next lecture why that is is very problematic. Okay, but leaving out intentionality is just another bad thing that physicalism and property dualism do, um, and just another way to show that the mind and the body are not identical because there's things about the mind that are true of the mind that are not a true of the body okay so then you get to our conclusion therefore i am not a physical object so physicalism cannot be true if third person explanations are inequ- inadequate to describe humans and we've shown why this is the case in several ways uh, first person perspective rationality unity all those things and that's another thing that our distinctions that we made in the last lecture can help us with. If you remember a property, if you, if you remember, we talked about this in the last lecture, a property is unchanging, right? And property dualism says uh, that mental states are just uh, immaterial properties of physical states. But if you remember, we said a property is unchanging, but the I that you experience is, is, uh, is not just this static universal that can be in many places at once. You remember we said that a property is only in things, right? And it is, it is uh, unchanging, and it can, and it's universal. It can be many places at once. But if the I that you experience uh, it, from your first-person perspective is just some property of a physical state, then that means that you essentially are unchanging and you can be in many places at once um, and you can only exist in physical things, uh, which seems absurd, right? The I that you experience um, is you. This can't be explained in physical or third personal terms alone. And since we can't explain ourselves in physical terms, Physicalism is false, and since we can't explain ourselves in terms of just mental properties, then property dualism is false, and we are left with a conclusion that we are immaterial beings, or let's at least say this, that our senses of the world, our emotions, our mental and spiritual faculties are immaterial and don't depend on our physical bodies for their existence. Thus, substance dualism, or something really close to substance dualism, is, is true, Okay, so, so that's, um, those are our two arguments for the soul. And like I said, if you are interested in these, you can uh, look at J.P. Moreland's uh, book. Uh, he's got more than that, but these are the two that I think uh, are, are some of the easiest. Not that any of it really is all that easy, but th- those are the two that I think are the easiest to explain so again, let's look at our questions for reflection. Uh, the first one is, what are qualia? Hopefully, you understand what that is by now—that what it is likeness to experience things. The second one is, do you think it would make sense to say that a picture of a baseball player is about a baseball player? Why or why not? The third one is, which of the arguments against substance dualism do you think is the strongest, and why? Uh, maybe another question you could ask is, which of the arguments for substance duism do you think is the strongest and why? And if you have any questions about these uh, arguments, please let me know in the comments or in an email. Um, I, I think this is our last time with our C.S. Lewis quote. Human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Um, I want to quickly uh, talk about Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Uh, That's where I went to seminary and got my PhD in philosophy of religion. Um, They have something for everyone. If you are interested in going to seminary or just interested in learning about philosophy, they've got uh, certificate programs. They've got a bachelor's master degrees, whether it's master of arts, master of divinity. You can go on uh, to do uh, postgraduate where you get a master in theology or a doctor of ministry or a PhD. Um, it's not just philosophy it's a, or, or learning about the Bible. It's also theology. It's apologetics. Uh, you really come out of there really well-rounded. And I highly recommend it. They have online programs and face-to-face programs. It's in Matthews. Uh, North Carolina um, uh, near Charlotte. So if you're in that area I would say check them out and if not you can go to ses.edu. Speaking of ses.edu if you are interested in a free apologetics resource you can go to Southern Evangelical Seminary's website ses.edu. Hover over the media uh, button and it'll, it'll take you to a link it says, "Why trust the God of the Bible?" If you click on that, it will take you to a free apologetics resource. It's a, around a 50-page book uh, that uh, that talks about uh, the you know, truth of Christianity. Just some evidence for Christianity, similar to some of the things that we cover in this uh, in this in these lectures. I also want to talk about Kingdom Preparatory Academy. Uh, this is the uh, classical Christian school where my uh, two kids go here in Lubbock, Texas. Um, it is a great school. It, it, it's all the way from pre-K to uh, 12th grade, and it is a university model set up so that um, your, your, the students only go to class usually from, uh, usually on, only on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays uh, to prepare them for when they, when they end up going to college. It won't be a shock to them because uh, the whole time they went to school, it was uh, just portions of the week. Um, it is a classical school, and they, they focus on teaching your, your kids how to think, not what to think. Um, and I highly recommend it. I wouldn't send my kids anywhere else in Lubbock, Texas. Um, it's, it's not only classical education, but also it is Christ-centered and, uh, and we love it. So if you're interested in a classical uh, alternative in Lubbock, Texas, I recommend going to kingdomprep.org and uh, checking, checking them out. Well, in our next lecture, we are going to be talking about um, objections to uh, mind-body dualism, and uh, we're going to finish it up with one last argument, the argument from reason, showing uh, how believing that you are completely physical is actually a a self-defeating belief. So I hope to see you there and I hope you have a good one.